Welcome to Now Appalachian, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachia. And hello, friends. We welcome you to another edition of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue profiling the outstanding authors with connections to the Appalachian region. I'm Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us. And I am so delighted with the author that we have on the program for you today because not only is he one of the best writers we have writing today, but he's also one of my personal favorite writers that we have writing today. He is the author of six New York Times bestselling books, most recently The Hush. His name is John Hart, and we're here to talk to him about his brand new book called The Unwilling. And John Hart is also, in addition to being a New York Times bestselling author six times over, he's also the author and the only author in history to win the Edgar Award for the best novel consecutively. And he's also won the Barry Award, the Saiba Award for fiction, the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award, as well as the North Carolina Award for Literature. His novels have been translated into 30 languages and can be found in more than 70 countries. And I am just so thrilled and so pleased to have uh, John Hart on the program with us today to talk to us about his outstanding new novel, The Unwilling. So John, welcome to Now Appalachia. So glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Elliot. It's a treat, man. I appreciate it. I wanted to... Um, read a passage to kind of start our interview today, because I think it really brings to the forefront what's going on uh, in this novel and some of the characters that are involved. And I thought I would read it briefly and just have you kind of unpack what we're hearing here and, and who's involved here, because we follow a, a very troubled family, the French family in your novel, but there's so much more going on there than just their inner troubles amongst themselves. And so I picked this passage from uh, page 221, and um, uh, th th this is when uh, you're writing about Bill French, who is the, uh, the father of the family and also a, a lead police detective and a lead police officer in the story. And you write uh, at the top of 221, he looked lost, but gathered up the threads of his conviction. When Robert died, it killed me. It killed us all, I know. But then I lost Jason too, not in the same way, but the boy I'd raised was gone, just... He opened an empty hand, but I still had you. I had you and your mother and this chest full of fear, this mountain, Gibby, this mountain of fear that if I slipped or made a mistake, I might lose you too. An accident, the war. So tell us a little bit about what Bill is referring to and who some of those people are, those names that he mentions kind of in that passage and their role in what happens in your story. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll try to you know, tie it into the broader uh, strokes of the novel so we can maybe fit these pieces together. I'm going to start by saying, um, you know, I love writing about families in these books. I mean, pretty much everything I've written, you can call them thrillers, you can call them suspense, crime fiction, uh, but most of them have a pretty strong uh, element of family drama. And I, I've believed for a very long time as a writer that that gives an added dimension and weight uh, to a good novel because, you know, we all have some family story, whether our families are good, bad, indifferent, horrible, I mean, whatever. If I write a dysfunctional family and a reader comes from a, a dysfunctional family, they can tune in and say, yes, I, I recognize that. And if the reader comes from the most wholesome family in the world, they, they, it can create this sort of morbid fascination with how these people interact. Because when it comes to family, um, cuts go deeper, uh, hurts linger, 
memory is a timeless thing. You know, we don't forget our family. We don't move on from our family. They're, they're always there in some capacity. So let me start with the people that you mentioned. So uh, the novel is set in 1972. It's in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, during the time of the Vietnam War. It's, it's not a novel about the war, but it's a novel about families impacted by the war. And so we see a family, the French family, um, a very elegant uh, yet emotionally fragile mother, uh, the father who was a 30 year murder detective in the city of Charlotte, and then three sons, two of which were twins, uh, one born on one side of midnight and the other born on the other side of midnight. So they were twins with different birthdays. And then the younger brother, Gibby, who's five years younger and about to graduate from high school. So he's two weeks out of graduation and the Vietnam War looms large. Um, you know, he has a college deferment, but his father was a Marine in Korea. His brothers fought in Vietnam. He feels that he's honor bound to, to enlist. Um, the tricky part for this family is that because one brother was born a few minutes before midnight, he was drafted because that's the way the lottery worked back then. So he was, let's call him the good brother. Robert was the good brother. So as a young man right out of high school, Robert went to Vietnam and, and died shortly thereafter. He was just not a hard player, just a you know really good kid and pretty much the beloved child of um, the younger brother, uh, Gibby, who's sort of the main thrust of the story and, and of the parents. In fact, when word comes back that he died, the mother, Gabrielle, uh, breaks down and admits in a, a voice that's a bit too loud that it should have been his twin brother who died, Jason, who died. Unbeknownst to her, Jason heard this outburst. So days after Robert's body comes home, Jason enlists in Vietnam. He's hurt. He's uh, broken by what he heard and what he believes his family feels that he, it should have been he who died. And uh, so, and he's also vengeful and angry and he wants to fight back and, and avenge his brother's death. So, um, the quote that you uh, read, that passage, is, is really the father speaking to his youngest son, trying to explain that he's done the best he could, that his mother has done the best he could. Now, why is this so important to Gibby, our young hero? Because two weeks before graduation, the surviving brother, Jason, who fought three tours in Vietnam, was extremely decorated, extremely dangerous, I mean, an above exceptional soldier. Uh, is drummed out of the service on, on a dishonorable discharge. He comes home uh, addicted to morphine, uh, which bleeds into heroin and ends up spending 27 months in the most notorious prison in North Carolina. And the novel really opens when he comes home. So the, the mother is terrified that he'll corrupt the son, the young son she's been overprotecting for all these years. The father is torn between the love of his children, the need to, sh to shelter his wife who's still struggling. And, um, and this is what lands on the shoulders of young Gibson French, uh, a matter of days before he graduates high school. Um, this black sheep, very dangerous, very poorly understood brother comes home, yet he is the only brother left, the last uh, heritage, and he still looks like the good brother that was so loved. Um, and the, the, the young boy decides he really wants to reconnect with this very dangerous uh, older brother. And uh, that is sort of the, the setup in the first few pages of the novel um, as Jason comes home. That was and a long I like, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And I like how every character you sort of set up in those first few chapters, really the first third of the novel, how every character is kind of looking at this return differently. And yet it's all very authentic and real for, you know, you talked about, um, uh, uh, 
the, the father, you know, kind of the, the distress, the parental distress that he experiences as kind of this prodigal son returnings uh, to their family. I mean, that's very understandable. You can see the mother, um, you can understand why the mother is feeling the way that she does because, um, you know, here's this really bad seed or this who she perceives as a bad seed walking back into their life. And what kind of influence is he going to have over Gibby going forward? Uh, and then at the same time, you've got Gibby who kind of admires his brother who seems like admires Jason because he seems like this larger than life figure. And all of that seems so real. You, you can see every one of those characters, even early on before we learn more about, about them and why they feel that way, you can see those as being very real visceral feelings. And I imagine uh, that comes from, you know, you're, uh, experience in writing and incorporating family stories and connections in a lot of your novels, but but your understanding of family dynamics, I think, also has to be pretty strong to present that in such a way in your book. Yeah, look, I I, I think it's um, I, I would take it even beyond the fa- the family dynamic. You know, the the quintessential survival skill for a novelist is to be uh, empathetic to any manner of character. I mean, I have to be able to get into the thoughts and feelings of horrible people, decent people, wounded people, lost people, uh, angry people, pick, pick a, a state of mind. And if this is going to be the kind of character-driven thriller where people are feeling the pain and love and loss and joy and release and all of these things that I want to conjure in the reader, then it needs to be compelling, right? Because um, readers are smart and, and they're rightly unforgiving. As soon as I break the covenant, meaning I do something that rings false, you know, they're going to put the page down for a moment and say, ah, you know, I just don't know that I buy that. And at that point, the promise that I made uh, has been broken and and they're right and certainly able to walk away. So it's super important to get those elements right. Um, and it's always a balancing act because the um, I, I like the thriller space. I mean, I, I like reading those books. I like to be dragged through the pages. I like to be kept awake. I like to escape into these stories. And so the challenge becomes, how do you build characters real enough to give it that extra depth without boring the reader out of their mind? Because you can't just layer on personality traits. You've got to feather them in uh, very gently. And it's the same thing with these uh, family dynamics and interpersonal dynamics. You have to sort of hint at what's going on and make the larger picture. Um, You know, the, the example I like to give is, and I don't remember exactly how the scene presented, but in The Great Gatsby, when the bad guy shows up at the party, um, the only thing we need to know about him is that he's wearing cufflinks made of human teeth. And, you know, I, I mean, wow. You know, I don't think I could pull off the equivalent of that, um, but it's so important to, to the, the reader needs to be able to see, feel, touch, taste, hear everything, but the key is to do it by giving them like three to 5% of everything that they need to fill in the picture themselves. And that's the real challenge, I think. You know, the, obviously the story needs to rock and roll, but you, you gotta be able to give the readers enough trust uh, to fill in those blanks with their own visions. And again, you can't, just can't break the trust. I mean, you really gotta, you gotta deliver. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that kind of leads me to my next question. There was a scene early in the story and I love how, how you do that and use that technique with Jason, especially. And there's a scene early in the book where they're at the quarry and um, the, the, you described sort of the, the, the high school machismo that's going on there where, where the, the high school guys like Gibby and his friends jump off the top of the quarry into this reservoir below. Um, and if you jump right and do it correctly, you make it. If not, you could injure yourself or kill yourself. And so it's this whole thing of them trying to impress the girls that are there. But, you know, Jason's out kind of floating around in the quarry and um, 
uh, Gibby goes up to him and he, he says a line to him, something to the effect that they have a discussion and uh, Gibby's trying to pry him for information about, you know, what he's been up to, what was prison like, what was serving in the war like. And Jason says something to him like, swim away, little fish, you know, <laughs> swim away, little fish, go back to the, to the shore. And that, that phrase stuck out to me. And I kept, as the story kept unfolding, I loved how Jason never really told everything that he knew or everything that he felt to everybody that he was interacting with. And it's only as we see circumstances change for him and uh, the plot really, really rev up, like you were talking about earlier, that we see kind of how those disparate threads, those little snippets of things that he tells his dad, those little snippets of stories he's telling Gibby, the things that he's telling other people, you can see the thread kind of finally emerge and how they all connect together. And I was wondering, uh, as you were sort of developing his character, and I think some of that carries over into some of the other characters as well, you know, uh, uh, Bill French doesn't tell necessarily everything he knows to everybody, and, and Gibby's not telling his mom and dad and his best friend Chance necessarily everything he knows. And so everybody's kind of dropping little, little nuggets of info, but not telling the whole story. And I was wondering, uh, as you were kind of setting up the, the story and these characters and the dialogue and everything, if that was difficult to balance, to, to know how much do I give in this conversation that these two characters are having, but not so much that I can't go back later and revisit this idea, you know, 10 chapters later. How did you, how did you set all that up? Was that challenging from a writer's perspective? Yeah. So th there are so many uh, great aspects to, to that question. I mean, that, that's like a master's class in and of itself. Um, it, okay. So first off, you got to give enough information to make, the matter compelling, whether it's the person or the scenario, or, you know, I, I like to say that if you can plant a question, a meaningful question early in the novel, your reader's gonna give you a lot of leeway to put all these places, all these pieces in place. So for instance, we know that Jason was a decorated hero, yet he ended up dishonorably discharged. We know that for some reason he drifted into heroin and motorcycle gangs and gun running and all these horrible things. and ended up in prison and we know that he's come home and he wants something from Gibby. We just don't know if we really trust his motives to be good. Does he really just want to connect with his little brother? We just don't know. And, and then you add in this, you know, that it was supposed to be Gibby's story, right? As I set out, in fact, I write Gibby in first person and everyone else in third so that the reader has no doubt that this is Gibby's story, the young man's coming of age story. And yet Jason, like a lot of characters are written over the years, became increasingly fascinating the more I thought about him and the more I wrote him. Um, and I wanted him to be this really great guy, but I wanted the aha moment to come at the end so that people, they don't know if they can trust him. They don't know if they like him. They don't know if he's going to you know, betray his family or uh, you know, his brother. Um, and you talk about dropping information. So yeah, Gibby's dropping information, but the reader really knows who Gibby is. The dad's dropping information, but the reader really knows who the dad is. Jason's dropping information, but the reader doesn't really yet know who he is. And so the scene that you described, he's floating in an inner tube out in the middle of the quarry and Gibby's coming out to tell him something he thinks is super important. And Jason is just, he's in, a, he's in his own dark, quiet place and he doesn't want to hear it. So he says, you know, swim away, little fish. Almost called the book, Little Fish. The publishers didn't think that'd be a good thriller title. <laughs> but but it's, it's so much about what the book is about. So you've got this, this young man who has no confidence in his ability to achieve manhood uh, and this very dangerous, um, poorly understood guy who is all man. We don't know if he's good man or bad man. Um, and, and so the coming of age element is this 
boy trying to decide what kind of man he wants to become. He had this really soft, good brother who died in the war, this really hard, um, you know, fascinating brother who, who doesn't really give freely. Um, and, and so I wanted to create Jason is this cipher that people didn't really understand until we really see what his story is. What happened in Vietnam? Why did he um, become the person he is? And, and that's one of the things that the father was talking about, you know, in the later part of that passage that you read at the beginning is he finally comes to understand what makes his son uh, what he is. And so what we end up with, or, you know, this question or these series of questions that I, I designed to be compelling to the reader so that, you know, even if there are slow points in the book, and there always are, um, you know, they know that there's more thriller type stuff coming, but they also have this compelling question. They just want to get to the end and find out what made this man the way he is. And I, I came to love Jason so much. And in many ways, I think he is the beating heart of the story, even though I, I set it up to be the younger brother's story. At the end of the day, I mean, Jason was just, I, I think he's one of the, certainly the most uh, fun to write characters I've ever done and, and perhaps the, the best in many ways. I don't know if you're a, a Pat Conroy fan. Uh, we we talk about him a lot on the show. Oh. I mean, my goodness, I just, I mean, just uh, probably well, my favorite writer. I mean, he's 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 the reason I became a reader. His his books are the reason I became a reader and a writer. But um, he reminded Jason reminded me the more I think about him of Luke from Luke The Prince Wingo. of Tides, Luke Wingo. Luke Wingo. Yeah. yeah, because it's really Tom Wingo's story, and we're following the story and of that. But it's really Luke who's kind of the heart and soul of the story. We find out, if you haven't read the book, you find out kind of in the latter third of the story how and why Luke is kind of the heart of the story. It just reminded me a lot of that, that Jason's place in the family and in the story reminded me a lot of Luke Wingo's uh, place uh, in The Prince of Tides, kind of being having the story mostly told from uh, Tom's perspective, the, uh, uh, the older brother. So uh, that was a, a strong parallel. It reminded me a lot of, uh, of Pat Conroy. So. Well, well, let me say a couple things about that. First of all, uh, I'm embarrassed that that didn't occur to me. And now I'm wondering if I was just ripping off Pat, which, <laughs> you know, Pat was nice enough to blurb my first novel, um, which he, he, at the time, he was so sought after for endorsements. His policy was, uh, I don't have time to do many and I don't like turning people away. So if you don't live in South Carolina, you're in the wrong state. So don't even bother. And I lived in North Carolina at the time. And I won't, I won't go into the long, actually fairly interesting story of how I finally convinced Pat to read my first manuscript long before it was published. Um, but he broke his South Carolina only rule and, and was kind enough to endorse the book. And I think it went a long way towards launching my career. Um, and, and he's passed now, he's dead. And if I'm offending his spirit by inadvertently ripping off uh, Tom and Luke Wingo, I'm real sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think he would be more than pleased uh, that, that, that that's being emulated. But it did. It just, it just reminded me so much of, of, of Luke Wingo in uh, The Prince of Tides. And we're talking with uh, John Hart here on Now Appalachia. His new novel is absolutely magnificent. It's called The Unwilling. And we'll come back and talk about it more in just a minute. But John, I wanted to ask you something that um, uh, uh, as someone who uh, who's read every book that you've written and followed your career closely, uh, I do know that you have developed another good relationship with another writer, and that is John Grisham. And I know that, that you guys live now in, uh, in Charlottesville, kind of close to, to one another. Um, so how did that friendship uh, evolve, first of all? And uh, what's it like being friends with John Grisham? Well, it's, it's kind of funny, and I'm glad he's not on the podcast because he said this often enough, and I always have to slap him around a little bit when he does. But he likes to say that I stalked him to Charlottesville um, and chased him down the pedestrian mall, you know, 
begging for his friendship, but uh, that, that's 99% false and 1% true. And, and the 1% is this, I did move to Charlottesville. I love this place. I live on a farm uh, actually in Keswick, just outside of Charlottesville. And I mean, it's God's country here. It's you know, clean and open and um, you know, bucolic splendor. The reason a lot of writers come here. Um, and I, I did know that John was here. He's not the reason that I came, no matter what he says. Um, but over the first two years I was here, I, I would run into people that knew John and, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to tell John about you. You should really get to know him. And in fact, I'll never forget. I felt really good about this. Um, first time I, I saw John. Well, actually, I take that back. Second time I saw John in Charlottesville, I was sitting in a restaurant and um, over my left shoulder behind me was a table full of uh, women. And just beyond them was a booth with John Grisham in it. And I, so it was almost like a diagonal line. And I looked over my shoulder just in time to see one of the women uh, say to her table mates, pointing first to me and then to John, I can't believe they're both here. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is awesome. You know, it's, I'm even in the same breath as John Grisham. You know, it's fabulous. Um, so anyway, a couple of years went by and uh, people kept saying, yeah, yeah, he knows who you are. He really wants to meet you. And, you know, he loves your books, et cetera, et cetera. And it's probably all, you know, pleasant little lies. But one day I was uh, on the pedestrian mall with an old high school buddy. We'd had quite the night out uh, the night before. And so we were eating uh, eggs and drinking Bloody Marys and trying to hold the tattered fragments uh, together after a rather late night. And walking past us uh, comes John Grisham. And as it turned out, we had just signed the check. And so I said to my buddy, I said, you know what? You want to meet John Grisham? And he said, yeah, I do. I said, this is happening right now. So I did kind of chase him down the mall. I was like, John, hey, John, you're John. And he was gracious. You know, he knew who I was. And he said, yeah, I've been wanting to get together with you. And um, so we made that happen. We've been friends for, gosh, about eight years now. And um, we have a group, four writers here in town, uh, myself, John, and two others that get together with some regularity. Um, for what we originally called the Liquid Literary Lunch, uh, and it was about four, four hours or so out at one of our favorite vineyards. Um, and then John, and I'm not telling anything he wouldn't admit, um, he really decided that the name of our club should be the, the, the well-hung jury. <laughs> Which, of course, is I think he was in a band or something or knew some people that used that name in college, or law school. <laughs> uh, but he's a good guy. He's right as a rain. He's, um, you know, he doesn't suffer fools lightly, uh, nor should he, but he is, he is as regular and just down to earth as you would hope. And it's, it's been a great, great friendship. Well, that's great. And, and I know that one thing you all share in common, both of you, both of you are recovering attorneys, I guess, uh, would, would be a, uh, uh, maybe a correct statement to, to assume. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I heard you on a podcast interview a couple of years ago, and you were talking about how you got into writing and that, you know, you, you would work as an attorney during the day and then would stay up really late at night and write. Um, and that's how you were able to kind of get your first work together and, and, and put together. Do you keep that same writing process now that you're no longer a practicing attorney, or how does your writing day look like? How is it structured, and do you still burn the midnight oil like you used to to get your books done? Well, let me, let, let me start by saying, and, and I offer this as a note of encouragement to any unpublished writers that are out there trying, because uh, I was that guy for a very long time, and I, I know what an in, 
insecure, frustrating existence that can be. Um, so I wrote two failed novels that weren't good enough to get representation. They weren't good enough to be published. I wrote one while I was doing a master's in accounting. And that was when I would stay up and burn the midnight oil for the most part. Um, Cause I just couldn't imagine actually being in an account. And I figured I'll just write this novel, sell it for a million bucks and you know, move on with my life. Of course, that's magical thinking. Um, my, my first advance by the contrast was 7,500 bucks, you know, and that was a year of my life. I wrote a second novel in law school. Um, wasn't that much better than the first, but it was better. And when I wrote the King of Lies, which is what eventually Pat blurbed and what uh, broke me in, into the business, uh, I had been a practicing criminal attorney for two and a half or three years and uh, decided I wanted one more try. So instead of being a part-time student or part-time lawyer, part-time writer, uh, I actually quit my practice for a year uh, and gave myself that time to try one last shot uh, at getting there, which was you know dangerous business because my wife was a stay-at-home mom. We had a brand new child, our first baby. Uh, so it was a little hairy uh, for a while there. I mean, we canceled cable. We stopped eating out and live lean. Um, but for me, that's what I needed. I needed to, to really just say this is what I'm doing and to, to approach it every day. And I would literally go to the local library and spend all day there. So now, I mean, I, I treat it like a job. I'm, I try to be at my desk, you know, early in the morning. And if things are going great, I'm done by lunch and I can goof off. If things are not going well, which happens more than I like, it's a long day. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. We're speaking with John Hart here on Now Appalachia, talking to him about his career as a writer and also his fantastic new novel, The Unwilling. So, John, let's go back to the book uh, for just a minute. And I wanted to pick up on something you've been kind of touching on uh, throughout the interview, and that is, you know, these complicated characters. We've talked about Bill and Gibby. We've talked about Jason, certainly. Uh, and, and complicated characters in and of themselves, but put in some difficult circumstances. And one of the things I really liked about all of those characters, we were talking about how, how we learn more about them as, as they uh, sometimes don't tell exactly everything they know and feel to one another. But one of the things, one of the themes I really picked up on your book is that when you take someone, you take a character like Jason or Bill or Gibby or, um, you, you know, even, even Bill's partner, Ken, Ken Burktow, um, and you kind of put them in a box and, and, and sort of put them in a frame and say, this is all that they are. Um, you know, you can sometimes as a reader, shut yourself off from uh, learning more about that character that you hadn't originally uh, created or hadn't originally thought of uh, at the beginning. And I wondered, um, as you look back at, at your novel, uh, was, was there a character who, who really surprised you? Who I know you mentioned Jason, you know, you really kind of fell in love with him as you were writing, but is there a character in your story that, that you thought, you know, I, I sort of put parameters or I kind of put them in a box. And then as the story kept unfolding, I realized, oh, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm missing out on so many more details to tell the reader and putting them in a situation where they're not going to, uh, uh, you know, they're not going to be able to necessarily experience those details that doesn't fit their picture of that character. Is there one that sort of popped up in, 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 in that process of writing? Great, great question. And I'll say there were at least two. And I love it when characters surprise. And, you know, readers that don't write are so baffled when they say that a character surprised me because how can I be surprised I'm the writer? But what happens, I think, is that as you write a character or multiple characters, there are those that you tend to think about more than others. And so what might have begun as a smaller character in a smaller box the more you think about that character, the more exciting they be, or maybe you you needed the character to fill a certain role, um, and then you realize that they can be so much more, and that's always a great discovery, and, and I'll give you two examples. So um, the first is Gibby's best friend, Chance, 
And now Chance is like, he's like the best friend we all wanted to have in high school. You know, he would, he would fight any boy, go for any girl, be your best friend. But, you know, deep down, he was this really genuine, heartfelt kid that was riddled with insecurity that he wanted no one to understand but you um, and just refused to show his, um, you know, his soft spots or his fear. Right. So he was he was very, very complicated, but he would always be there in a pinch. Now, I wrote Chance in many ways to be a contrast to Gibby. So Gibby has a college deferment. He doesn't have to go to Vietnam. Um, he's torn whether he should. And we, we get the feeling that he's very likely to enlist before this is all said and done. Chance, on the other hand, is harboring the secret terror uh, of the war. He, he has all these magazines and he reads all the newspapers and he knows how horrible a young man can die in a place like Vietnam. So he hides it. Um, he, he considers it the secret of his schoolboy shame, this, this fear that he has. And he fears deep down that he's a coward in his soul. And, um, you know, and he guards that secret like something horrible. And by the end of the novel, we see that he, he, you know, he is not the coward that he fears, that he is able to find a strength that is admirable that we would all hope to have uh, when the chips are down. So he was one of them. And the other one was this young girl, Becky, um, who was Gibby's love interest. And, you know, my initial thinking with her was, was you know, pretty shallow. I was like, look, this is a very man novel. This is a male-centric novel. And you got the father, the brothers, the war, the aftermath of war, the violence and, and all the stuff that comes through it. And so I started thinking, you know, I, I wanted the mother to be kind of absent and, and damaged. And I, I wanted to have a strong female character. And so I wrote Gibby's burgeoning love interest, keeping in mind this is also a coming of age story. So you've got this beautiful young girl that uh, comes from horrible circumstances, but is beloved by all. She's beautiful. She's smart. You know, she should be destined for Harvard or Princeton where her family not so dire. And in fact, Chance is, spends a lot of time warning Gibby, you know, don't get involved with this girl. If you do, make sure you understand what you're in for because she's so poor, she's going to have these big buttons and you're going to push them inadvertently and you're going to drive her away. And, and she turns out to be this wonderful surprise because she becomes an ally in every sense of the word. I mean, you know, she becomes the, the true young love um, that takes him from boyhood to manhood when he thinks it's going to be war that does that, or he thinks it's going to be a dive off this 115 foot cliff that does that, or it's going to be saving his brother that does that. But it's actually this wonderful young girl that a, um, you know, teaches him, I mean, in the traditional sense, hey, welcome to manhood. I mean, it's a really wonderful, tender love story between them. But she's also a really smart, strong ally in this quest to find out, you know, who did these horrible murders that uh, Jason is in prison for. I mean, we, you know, the, the brother that we've talked about so much, Jason, you know, he ends up in prison for these really gruesome murders. And um, this young girl who has no business involved in such a messy affair becomes this really just clear thinking, wonderful source of support uh, for Gibby, even when he, you know, he's looking death in the face. I mean, she, she is a stalwart friend. So that was a lot of fun. And I didn't expect her to be so great. And, and I, I love her at the end. So she's kind of a, I think she's the girlfriend that we all might have liked to have. And Chance was the uh, friend that we'd all uh, like to have. And, um, you know, Jason might not be the brother we'd like to have, but at the end, we'd be pretty damn glad to have him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very it, good. It's fun. it's fun doing those things. 
Absolutely. No, no doubt about it. And those, and those characters that you mentioned are all wonderful and play such an important role uh, in the story as well. So, uh, so John, as I, as I got turned to the last page of The Unwilling and closed the cover, I sort of rubbed my hands together and I said, all right, I'm ready for the next one. So what are you working on next? Well, uh, at the moment, uh, I'm writing a sequel to Redemption Road, which came out in 2016, which was the first female protagonist I've ever written. And, um, you know, I'm, it's, it's going well. I like where I am. I'm not moving it as quickly as I normally would. And I can't decide if that's pandemic, just malaise, you know, because it's, what does a book matter when the world's suffering the way it is? I mean, really, it's, it's hard to, to get as excited about words on a page as I used to when I'm worried about family and friends in the country. Um, if it helped, I mean, the world, I mean, we're all in this together. Um, I really, really like the way the story is going. I just wish I were further along. Yeah, I understand. So in our final moments with, uh, with you today, John, if anyone wants to get in contact with you uh, to talk to you about The Unwilling, to talk to you about uh, the other novels that you've written, uh, or just to reach out and stay in contact with what you're up to, um, first of all, where, how can they get in contact with you? And secondly, where can they get copies of The Unwilling? Okay, let's, let's go reverse order. I mean, The Unwilling should be everywhere. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it should be any place that sells books, um, audio, Kindle, all that stuff too. Um, I actually have uh, uh, an email link through my author webpage, which is johnhartfiction.com. Um, when new books come out, I get pretty inundated uh, with emails. And so I have a little note on there that I read everything. I can't always respond. Uh, I hope you understand, uh, but I do love hearing from readers. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. I don't much care for Twitter, uh, but John Hart author on Facebook, John Hart author on Instagram. I can be reached through those, but again, I, I do the best I can. You know, for people that want to, um, you know, talk publicity, uh, you know, it's best to go through the publishing house, um, St. Martin's Press. I have some links on my website. Um, you know, for all those Hollywood types that really just can't wait to make this into a movie, you know, they, they can call me on the bat line, the bat phone. I'm, I'm ready to go. Fantastic. We've had the distinct pleasure here on Now Appalachia today to talk to uh, one of America's really honestly and truly great writers, and his name is John Hart, one of my personal favorite writers, and I've been a huge fan for a long time. He's got an outstanding new book out. It is called The Unwilling. John Hart is the, also the author of six New York Times bestsellers. His book before The Unwilling was called The Hush. If you're new to John Hart or you have not read John Hart, you need to uh, correct that right now. Go get a copy of The Unwilling when it comes out. It'll be released February uh, the 2nd of 2021 from St. Martin's Press. And John, uh, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about the book, about writing, about your career. Uh, it was truly a pleasure. Congratulations on this terrific, terrific new novel. It's just, just outstanding. So thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, Elliot, thank you, man. It's been a real, real treat. And I'll just say one last thing. Um, you know, writing is a pretty lonesome business, as you can uh, probably attest to. It's really nice to have a chance to come out and talk about what I do. So thank you for that. My pleasure. My pleasure. We want to take a few moments as we finish up on this edition of Now Appalachia to, first of all, say thanks so much to you for listening, but also give a shout out to our executive producer of Now Appalachia and the executive producer of all of the podcasts that you hear each and every episode on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Our producer is Pam Stack. We could not do this and bring these podcasts to you without her help and out all, without all the work that she does behind the scenes. So Pam, thanks so much for all that you do to support us each and every episode here on Now Appalachia. And we also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. 
Well, that's going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.